This is Daniel Lukovic from Calamity. Since coronavirus saw businesses shut down, there's been an urgent desire for society to reopen as quickly as possible. As we adjust to what's been called the new normal, a key aim for government and the private sector is to stop the spread of coronavirus and infection in general. Virtually overnight, the security industry has started promoting thermal fever-detecting CCTV cameras in a big way as a possible solution of preventing infected individuals coming onto protected properties. This technology is now being marketed as a solution to event organisers at large venues, as well as hospitals, nursing homes, schools and businesses big and small. But does it actually work? Well, I'm not convinced. Best case, even if the technology did work and it was foolproof, one area that's not been given much consideration is what do organisations do next? Do they have security protocols and resources in place to properly manage such a detection by system? What do they do? Eject people? How are they going to manage the privacy concerns arising from all of this? And what would happen if people sought to deliberately defeat such a system? For example, a young person who was determined to see a -a once-in-a-lifetime concert, so they splashed some cold water on their forehead to lower the temperature before entering a venue that they believed was going to be temperature-screening individuals. It's a modern take on concealing drugs before you enter a dance party. Or what about when people's temperature might affect their ability to attend work and earn wages? The New York Times has already reported of an Iowa meat processing plant worker who died of coronavirus. Now, they've been taking Tylenol to reduce their temperature in a deliberate attempt to pass temperature checking that might have otherwise prevented them from coming to work. These are classic security risk management questions that would need to be considered in assessing the strengths and weaknesses of any system. Technology can and does fail all the time, and the security of any system is only as strong as its weakest link. But even if you could address all of these issues, there's still a fundamental question of, does this technology actually work? And given the potential size of the market for such things, it's a $1 billion question. I spoke recently to John Honovich of IPVM.com. IPVM.com is a world-leading source of video surveillance information, and they conduct independent reviews of surveillance systems and technology, providing honest, objective information to buyers and security management. Unlike many in the security press, IPVM is a subscription-based service, and so by not relying on advertising revenue, they're able to be highly critical of surveillance vendors when they have it coming, and many of them do. John and I spoke at length about the work IPVM have already done testing vendors' own claims in respect to fever-detecting cameras, and I asked him, does this technology even work? The Washington Post ran an article recently saying they really don't work, and this created a bit of a firestorm because it begged the question of what is it for something to work? I would say the the biggest issue is, is the expectations that have been set by companies selling these systems and marketing them have been terrible. The way these systems are marketed, they work poorly in actually detecting fevers. So the marketing shows groups of people walking at the same time. It shows people with hats and with glasses and bangs covering their foreheads and people walking at angles. That, in our testing, we've done already five systems, including Dala, Hike Vision, Sinel. That causes major problems with detecting people who actually have fevers. So that's the biggest issue, is that if you take the advertising, the marketing, and what the salespeople are saying literally, which lots of buyers do, you're going to have lots of problems with it working and lots of people with fevers being missed. So the problem is false negatives, that is not detecting people who potentially have an elevated temperature. Yes. Now, there's the other risk in terms of the false positives. Now, on your side of of the globe, as things are getting colder, it's probably not a risk right now. On our side, the northern hemisphere, as temperatures get warmer, right, 30C, 32C, et cetera, 
you're going to have much more risk. Someone walks in basically from you know, using Fahrenheit, at least on our side, it's 95, 100 degrees out. If you're walking outside in a 95 Fahrenheit, 100 Fahrenheit temperature and you walk inside, the risk of basically you having an elevated temperature just because you've been outside is very, very high. So if the weather is 70 degrees or like 25 Celsius, you still have the risk of basically being missed because people with hats and hair and glasses and things like that. But then you also have the risk when it gets really warm that you're going to basically get uh, false positives. But on the flip side, if it's really cold and you walk in from when it's five degrees Celsius, you have the risk basically that you might have a fever and you still might be missed because your forehead temperature is cold because it's cold outside and you just walked inside and right, your forehead is still relatively cold from being out in the cold. If you've traveled through Asia any time in the last decades, you will see this sort of technology deployed at boarding gates and so forth. And I imagine an airport is a much more controlled environment. They can control the climate. They can control the numbers of crowds and the way those crowds behave. So that would seem like an ideal environment to deploy this, as opposed to any other organization where you just have a front door or a gate or something like this. The systems that are in use at airports, are they better or worse, or do they work, or are they also unreliable? So there's not many studies that we've found so far. We found an EU study for basically something between like SARS and H1N1, and it wasn't entirely encouraging from what we saw at the studies, that very few people were detected with fevers, like a minuscule percentage. But we haven't studied those studies enough, and there's not enough nor enough recent ones for us to be certain about airports. However, to your point, some of the things about airports being indoors and that people have been indoors for some time and that you're controlling people anyway, right, because you're in sort of a, a constrained environment where you expect to be searched, stopped, etc., some of the infrastructure logistics of airports lend itself better to do these types of screening. Mm. To the contrary, take an example. We saw a case in Vancouver in a liquor store that had a hike vision camera. And whether it was a hike vision or any one camera, you'd still have this issue. The camera was pointed at the front door entrance to the outside. So this is one of the worst case scenarios for having a fever camera, a temperature camera. Every time someone opens a door, you're either getting the heat or the cold from the outside. The person's immediately being checked coming from the outside. So there's issues like that. And of course, this has gone from the sort of rare domain of airports where they're making these sort of long-term planned out decisions to someone saying, oh my God, I want to open my liquor store. And you're going to throw up one of these fever cameras, hoping that you're going to detect people who have fevers coming into your liquor store. Mm. So you've effectively got a perfect storm where you have an uneducated end user who has no understanding of this and they just want to get their business moving. You have an uneducated integrator or installer who's traditionally used to just hanging cameras on a wall that just work. And they're in turn being misled by vendors who are saying that these products can do amazing things that are really beyond the realms of current technology. So you've really got the blind leading the blind selling to the blind, don't you? Oh, I think in some ways it's worse than that. It's not that I think people are blind. It's that people are in panics. So if you look at from the sellers, a lot of the sellers have faced dramatic drops in their revenue. So mm. the sellers are panicked. Do I need to lay people off? Am I going to lose my business? Mm. The buyers, in this case, like the liquor store, I don't know that liquor store, but I would imagine that liquor store is concerned about people coming into a store. 
And so they're like, hey, how do I keep my liquor store open? Well, maybe I'll try out this fever camera and I'll pay the $10,000, $20,000 these things go for to hopefully get my store up back and running. So yeah. I think that's the other element. There's been a lot of panic on multiple sides here right. that's sort of driving this initially. So they're seeing it as a cheap gamble, really, that, look, it's ten, fifteen thousand, 15000 It may work, it may not work. But if that gets me in business, that's probably better than doing nothing. So that's the way they're seeing it? Basically. I don't know. For a lot of these businesses, I wouldn't necessarily call it cheap. But I think worth it. You say, like, hey, if my store is shut down for the month, I'm going to lose $50,000 in mm-hmm. revenue or $100,000 in revenue. So you know, I'll spend this $20,000. And if that makes my store open, well, then it's worth it. So I think that's some of the mental calculations going on to help justify it basically on the user side. Obviously, security companies are also worried about the future of their business. So some of them have sort of pivoted into this space despite historically having no particular experience with it. They're again just relying on vendor claims, which may or may not be accurate. But what is the size of this market? We estimated that it's likely to be billions of dollars this year in U.S. dollars. If you look at it in years past, it was something like tens of millions, maybe $100 million at most. And as we both observed, that it primarily was an airport type thing, right? It's a very large scale transit point. And it's moved basically from airports to all over the place. Some people think this is the new normal and you're going to measure temperatures forever, but also Mm. some people think people are going to wear face masks forever. Mm. I'm less of the belief that you would do it forever or for sort of more than a few years. Mm. The world will come back. It came back from the Spanish flu and many other different pandemics over the years. So I I don't see basically the why people in 2025 are still going to be using fever cameras to go to a liquor store. I think it's a matter of time before the market crashes. But of course, whether it crashes in three months or a year or three years makes a big difference in terms of how much money the sellers will make. For now, it's clearly the the hottest growing thing that's hit video surveillance in almost 20 years. Yeah. The last one that I saw was probably analytics 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, analytics didn't work. But you had vendors telling people that we just put this camera here and it will tell you when a person jumps a fence or when a recently post 9-11 world when a suspicious object is going to get left lying around by terrorists. Right. There's something really importantly different about the analytics case. Mm. Because in the analytics case, it's very easy to see that the analytics don't work because mm. the wind or a headlight or dust or rain would set off the analytic alerts. And you'd be like, well, it never seems to get people jumping over the fence. And that's a rare thing, but it gets mm. all these other types of things. Mm. What's really problematic about these fever cameras is that If you look at basically how a security installer would normally go about it, you'd walk up to the camera. It says you have, I'll do it in Celsius, it's 36.8 degrees, right? Oh, it's pretty good, right? That's what I am. But the reality is it's the opposite of analytics, where analytics was really hard to make it ever work. I've made this joke a number of times that I could make a fever camera that was basically just a color camera face detector with a random number generator. And I would just basically say, hey, pick a number between 36.6 and 37.1 and just randomly pick from there. Mm. And people will come to you and say, please take our money. People will be like, wow, like this is amazing. How did you get so close? You guessed 36.8 and I'm 37.0. How did you get so close? It's like, well, it's because 90 plus percent of people are within one degree Celsius, literally temperature range. So it, it isn't that hard basically to essentially say, 
everyone is sort of roughly 37 degrees because everyone is roughly 37 degrees. In temperatures, nobody has a 40 degrees Celsius normal temperature or 42 or 33. If you had a 33 degrees body temperature, you'd be on the verge of death. Yeah. That's what's really fascinating about these fever things is that as long as a system throws out a number that's close to what's statistically average, mm. it looks super accurate. They fail quietly. So as opposed to, say, analytics where you knew you had a problem or any security system when you suffer loss and the security system didn't pick up on it, you know you had a problem. Whereas this, you could have a massively infected person who could walk in past yeah, their infection never, to every surface and every individual in a building. The system wouldn't go off and you would actually never know because they could come and leave without a trace. There's definitely that risk. The other thing that I see in terms of, and I think that was one of the things we talked about, how do you test it? Mm. is that the water bottle thing. Have you seen the water bottle thing on when people do marketing? Where they're measuring the temperature of water bottles? Yes, I have. The big thing with the water bottles is you take hot water, you put it in the water bottle, you put it on your forehead, and then you walk through and it's like, wow, like you got a 40 degrees temperature reading. One thing we realized in our testing was that the water bottle thing isn't fundamentally a bad test, but you need to control it to a very specific temperature. Like in Fahrenheit, when I've seen these demos, it's like people have 112 degrees temperature. If you have 112 degree temperature, you're not going to get there. You'll be dead at that point. What you really care about is people at 100 degrees, 101, 102. So when you do that, that's where you see the bigger issues. And that's more realistic because the likelihood of someone coming in into your facility with 106 degree temperature Fahrenheit is really low because that's someone basically no, that, like, that's, you know, that's apocalyptic. There's going to be other subtle clues that that person has a fever. John, I'm by no means an expert in thermography, but I understand emissivity, which is how much infrared a particular surface emits. So, for example, a black carbon steel fry pan might emit a certain level, whereas a stainless steel fry pan would emit something else. So those two things at exactly the same temperature will read differently on an infrared thermometer that you use in the kitchen. So it would seem to me also that skin has an emissivity that perhaps a water bottle doesn't, that clothing doesn't, and non-contact thermometers. So the things that get pointed at your forehead have been calibrated to adjust for skin emissivity. So for example, a lot of people very early in coronavirus might take their infrared thermometer that they used for testing their air conditioning or their electrical switchboards or their barbecue. And then they quickly put that in the reception to measure the temperatures of people. And of course, they freaked out because those temperatures were quite a few degrees lower than where they should have been. So it would seem to me that cameras have this similar challenge that they have to meet. So even the water bottle test, knowing that a clear plastic water bottle is going to transmit heat and light very differently to skin seems to me to be in the field of sort of circus tricks rather than actual science. Yes, I and mean, you could really heat up your forehead. So what we found basically is that Sunel and Hike Vision only look for temperature, retemperatures on the forehead. Mm. What we've done with our testing is that you can heat up a forehead and you can control it roughly by using basically a handheld thermometer to double check that you can get it to 101 or 102, et cetera. You don't want to get it to 105 or 106 because, again, that's not terribly realistic. It's going to be extremely rare that someone's walking into basically any facility with 105 and you're well, not, going not going to, to notice it. So what we did is we heated up the forehead with the water bottle but then took the water bottle off and had someone walk through. What we found was that especially when you had hair or hats or walking through that many of them were missed and the system came in low. So what we found was that the systems that we've tested so far, DAWA, Hike Vision, Sunel, tend to normalize readings, meaning that lower readings 
or bad readings tended to become more normalized, like closer to 37 degrees Celsius, mm-hmm. and that higher readings tend to come in lower. And that's a risk, of course. If you really want to know if someone basically has, quote unquote, fever, you definitely want to make sure that you have, if someone has a 37.5 or 37.8 temperature, you want to make sure you get it and it doesn't get read lower as like 37.1, for example. So do some of these systems auto-adjust and recalibrate themselves over time? No, they don't auto-recalibrate. I mean, you need to make sure that you're recalibrating them yourself. There's no magic. Even basically when you calibrate these systems, you have to manually input what the ambient temperature is. So if you make a mistake, let's say you put it in that it's 70 and it's actually 65, that will throw off your readings. Right. So for example, if people were deploying this technology outside, for example, at a stadium or a major venue or a vehicular entry or something like that, it must fail. It won't must fail because most people don't have fevers. So the problem is anytime you're basically doing this type of fever thing, it's like a needle on a haystack type application. Let's simplify it. Instead of saying the temperature, we're going to say fever, not fever. We're going to make it binary, okay? And I say not a fever, 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 right? And then we had someone do the ground truth and actually tested them with an oral thermometer. 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of 1,000, I would be right because Mm. people don't have fevers. A fever Mm. is a very rare condition. So that's basically the challenge there. The issue when you're going to do it outdoors is that you're going to have variations in temperature, whether the position of the sun, clouds will make it slightly hotter or colder. People's clothing as well, which would warm their body up, I imagine. Also, how long people have been outside. And even if you think about it, like people talk about doing this in casinos, like as Las Vegas, at least in the US, is kind of the big mental image. The issue is if you're walking outside and go indoors and immediately are checked, you're going to have a different surface temperature than someone who got out of an Uber or out of a taxi and was in basically air conditioning and just walk straight into the casino. Mm. So those are some of the challenges that you're getting into when you're trying to do these types of things outdoors. And so you can compensate. We've seen things like you can set the alarm threshold higher. Like if you don't really trust your system, you can say, well, you know what? Because people are coming in from outdoors, we're getting too many people that are being stopped because whatever, they were just walking outside and it was warm. So instead of making the alert temperature be at 37.5, let's move it to 38. Well, let's move it to 38.2. Well, let's move it to 38.4. So you get into this classic trade-off between false negatives and false positives. Mm. If you keep on moving it up, well, great. You're going to have less false positives. Though the flip side problem you have is that other people basically who have fevers, who were in air conditioning or put water on their face or whatever it was, those people are going to be missed and go through. So it's a really hard thing to do. There are standards to this. There's the IEC global standards. The US FDA has done testing. And the technology itself, or at least the underlying technology of thermography, is fairly mature. But the understanding, when you're looking at these studies and looking at the standards and, and government regulations, is that you need to do this in controlled environments. And that's really the big issue that you get here, is that academia and governments and standards all say, hey, you've got to basically do this in this very controlled manner. Mm-hmm. And then the marketing of the security companies is like, ha, 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 you can wear a helmet and you can walk through with six other people and we're going to do this accurately. Right. And so that's the problem. If the vendors would just say like, hey, we understand what the global standards are. We understand what the studies say. We're going to follow this. Most of the problems would go away. So, John, obviously, research into coronavirus is 
breaking in real times. But based on what we know today, up to a quarter of people who are infected can exhibit no symptoms whatsoever. So they can be walking around as a completely asymptomatic carrier. So we already know that even of the needle in the haystack, the people who are infected, a quarter of those individuals may not show any symptoms. What are some of the outrageous claims that you've seen vendors making? I'll give you some funny examples. And we did our testing. So I tell our, our team when we do testing, I want you to go to the company's website and I want you to test what they claim. Literally read the website, look at the pictures. If they say that they can detect a dog wearing a tuxedo, then you test with the dog with the tuxedo. Mm. And if they say that basically they can do fever detection with someone wearing a helmet or a hat and glasses or three people side by side, then that's what we test. Right. So we do that. And then we went to the manufacturers, two of the manufacturers happened with, and then they came back. The engineering team said like, oh, no, 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 no. We don't recommend you do that. You shouldn't wear hats or you shouldn't do this. And then I said to him, I said, wait, have you seen your own company's marketing? Your own company's marketing is filled with examples of this. A lot of these companies' engineering team fundamentally knows how these things work mm -hmm. or don't work, right, in, in this instance. But the sales and marketing team, and however that works out, I don't know how they got there. But the story that the sales and marketing teams are saying diverges from what the engineering team actually understands. It seems that in some respects, this is similar to any other technology product, that they really only have two opportunities to stand out. One is in terms of their capability and what their systems can do, and the other is price. And they're probably all sort of competing on both fronts. So they're all trying to say, well, our camera technology is better than someone else, or our technology is just cheaper. One of the things that I found interesting is the amount of this technology that's coming out of China. So you mentioned two companies that are doing that. Now, on the one hand, Asian countries obviously have a lot more experience than many other Western countries do in dealing with pandemics. They've been dealing with it for years. There's a reason that Sydney Airport never did temperature detection. But if you got off a plane in Hong Kong five to 10 years ago, they did. So on the one hand, they're probably more familiar with it. But on the other hand, there have been some major issues with Chinese security technology. And I know, for example, a number of vendors have been outright banned at US government facilities because of fears of the communist Chinese government actually using that as a spying technology. How are you finding that government consumers and the broader market are managing this divide? Two things. One, I think the experience thing with China companies is not accurate in this context. If you look at Dower Hike Vision, from everything that we've researched, they've rushed out these solutions in the last couple of months. They were not doing human body, skin temperature detection prior to the coronavirus mm -hmm. pandemic. Sunel was, but Sunel was doing this in schools. And Sunel has their own issues because they've got this, relatively speaking, super wide field of view, which creates other problems mm -hmm. when you're trying to accurately detect fevers in this type of environment. So I don't think that the China manufacturers, especially the ones that market it in security for sure, have like this advanced expertise in fever detection. The government issue, DALA and Hike Vision are banned for US government use in August of this year, just three months from now. They're scheduled to be banned for federal government for broader use as well, the quote unquote blacklisting clause for government contractors. So there's been a lot of panic in general in terms of what to do with these systems, though it still seems for the most part more critical infrastructure is going with FLIR. But there's the famous example of Amazon, even in the USA, using DALA, which resulted in the, the Reuters investigation, a lot of basically questions about that. 
So, John, you mentioned FLIR. For those who aren't aware, FLIR are absolute market leaders in thermal cameras and though infrared sensing and so forth. And I mean, that traditionally has been for security applications. So spotting a person through the bushes or through the fog in the freezing cold of night where traditional cameras or other sensing may work. And they're very good at that. They've got a lot of great stuff. And they also are strong in the sort of scientific sensing uh, and emergency sensing field. But I mean, they made a comment on their website. FLIR actually state, there is no way to thermally detect an infected individual who doesn't have an elevated skin temperature. And only a licensed medical professional can determine if a hot individual is experiencing an abnormal medical condition. In other words, on their website, they have this massive disclaimer saying their stuff doesn't work for detecting coronavirus. Yes, that's because FLIR is an established U.S. company that understands how U.S. Food and Drug Administration regulations work. Though you'll see similar disclaimers in many fever camera offerings saying that this does not detect coronavirus, etc. To FLIR's credit, though, they've been very upfront about it. And they've basically said this is the wrong tool for that solution. But their technology is now being leveraged by other people who were sort of piggybacking off the prestige of their brand. They are marketing elevated skin temperature detection, and they are saying that per FDA regulations or guidelines, that when it's used with FDA-regulated clinical thermometer, that it can be used for this. They also are FDA-cleared to do this. Mm. The more interesting dynamic that I see between FLIR and many of the new entrants is that FLIR has been consistently very conservative Mm. in how they recommend this to be used. Mm. They literally talk about people stop, take off their glasses. Mm. And this is much different than most of the other companies that are marketing this that are saying like, hey, don't worry about glasses or hats or hair or anything. You just sort of walk by and like, we got this. From everything that we've seen, everything like even from the FDA studies and from other academic studies, We haven't seen any studies that say put three people side by side wearing helmets and hats and glasses and whatever, and you're going to get accurate results. That doesn't exist from everything that we've seen. The engineering teams know this as well. When you look at Sunel, they have marketing where they're doing 8, 12, 24, 40 people at one time. But like when you read the installation instructions, they're very clear that they want it one at a time. And so you have different applications. For example, you have a liquor store would have a very different use case to say a stadium or a nursing home or a hospital or a hotel. But even those facilities themselves have different use cases. So for example, a hotel might have a predictable number of visitors coming in through a door at any particular time. And that may fall within the manufacturer recommendations, but they would also have staff shift changes where you might have 400 people coming and going at the same time, which would completely throw that out of whack. People are sort of looking for a one-size-fits-all, and it just simply doesn't exist, does it? The one-size-fits-all doesn't per se exist. The issue is that we've heard this from lots of end users as well, is that like it has to be high throughput. But the real answer, if it has to be high throughput, then you're going to miss lots of people Mm. with fevers. That's the reality. You have to take Mm. your pick. The problem is the sales and marketing people who are saying like, yeah, we understand it has to be high throughput and we have a high throughput application. Mm. We've seen things where it says 30 people per second, 18 people per second, X thousands per minute or whatever. Mm. And that's the problem is to Mm. say that you can do it accurately and do this high throughput. That's Mm. the problem. It's one of these interesting risk challenges. I mean, if you looked at, say, traditional metal detection, 
If you said to aviation or an airport or a stadium that these metal detectors will only let through 1% of people carrying a fully automatic weapon, they'd freak. They'd never buy into it because they would apply that risk management and decide, well, that's not right. an acceptable risk that we're yeah. prepared to wear. But in this case, that particular percentage may be comfortable. And of course, unlike a person with an automatic weapon who then decides to use it, this person's not going to reveal themselves until everything's long since sure. gone. I think your analogy is good in terms of basically like a metal detector lets more people get through with guns. The issue right now is this is, so we're really only in month four. When we talk about it in terms of outside of China, we're really only month two. But I can remember all the way back to April. April was initially like a panic. I think we're already seeing now is that you're getting people more informed and thinking more rationally about it month by month. Mm -hmm. So I expect that to continue and that people will have a greater sophistication and understanding of the subtleties of using this type of technology. It's really hard. If you're a security director and you need to make this decision within what mid-March, basically when it went sort of global, between mid-March and April 15th, while people are being locked at home, that's a really sort of difficult decision to make without understanding the technology, with this panic. Am I going to die? Is my family going to die? Is my business going to go out of business? I think that was super difficult, especially during the first month. I'm quite confident that people will continuously act more rationally about these technologies as time goes by and they get more of an understanding of what the real trade-offs of using these things are. So, John, if you had a security manager or government procurement or someone who had been told, we need this, this is the way to go, or perhaps this is just one of the tools we're going to add to our arsenal, what resources would you point them toward in being able to identify fact from fiction and things which work well, things which work so-so, and things which just simply don't work? IPVM is literally the, the only site in the world that's actually doing these types of thorough testing of various products. We've been the world leader. We've been quoted in yep. publications throughout the world for what we're doing. We had four, now we have like five people working full-time just testing these systems. We've literally shut down testing anything else right now, and all we do is basically test these sort of fever cameras and systems because there's an immense demand to try to get help basically figure out like, do these things work? But even right now we're testing the kiosk system, the tablet ones that you like walk up to, they're less expensive. And we're trying to figure out what are the various issues with that. So quite honestly, IPVM. That was John Honovich of IPVM.com. My name is Daniel Lukovitz from Calamity. And if you care about your security and would like to talk to someone about a security system that works, including installation of CCTV, as well as 24-7 monitoring of alarms and video, you can ring Calamity 24-7 on 1-300-300-24-7 or visit us at calamity.com.au.